welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 103, recorded November 24th, 2012, just a few days after Thanksgiving. Yep. Yep, I'm still indeed. full of turkey. Indeed. Turkey and barbecue, that's what we had this year. We went a little little off the norm. Turkey and barbecue, nice. Yeah, sweet. good. We had turkey and ham for the first time. Don't normally have ham also, but yeah. we did that this year. But barbecue, that's that's interesting. But being down in Texas, yeah. I can see where I can see where a barbecue might be teed up for the meal. Yeah, well it was it was new for all of us, but it it went over pretty well. Good. Excellent. And there's you know, brisket uh sandwiches the next day instead of ham sandwiches the next day was was a welcome change. Mm, brisket. I like brisket. Mm-hmm. It was good. Tasty. Good. All right. So, so anyways. What are we here for? We're talking about Star Trek Next Generation. Yes, we are. DC Comics came out late October and November of 1993. Cool. Issues 52, 53, and 54. Yes. And these all coincidentally are all set in one story arc. Right. Three issues. No breaks. No waiting for two weeks to get to the next one. We got it all here. That's right. And it's a it's a holiday goes awry type episode. Yes, we Not haven't to seen that spoil before. It yet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a Dixon Hill film noir kind of a thing going on. A mystery, a murder mystery, as it were. It it is your definitely your everyday murder mystery. Exactly. A who done it? A who done it? Exactly. So anyway, so you want to just let's just go into it, or let's we have any it. other housekeeping things to talk about? No, 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 no housekeeping. Let's just get into the story. All right. So issue number fifty-two came out October nineteen ninety-three, late October. Let's see who was the uh, the writer was Michael Jan Friedman. Pablo Marcos was the artist. Bob Panaha is the letterer. Julianne Farider is the colorist. Rick Taylor, editor. So Rick Taylor, he's new, right? Because it was Alan Gold, right? So yeah. We've switched yeah. editors. Yeah, so these are when they were cranking them out every other week. So maybe he had to take a week off. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so the issue is entitled The Rich and the Dead. So the cover has a caption that reads, Dixon Hill is on the case. And the cover does not disappoint. It looks like the cover of an old pulp paperback. In the middle is a smirking Dixon Hill. And around him is uh, some, not photos, but some pictures of some uh, lovely ladies. One on the bottom is a, I don't know who she is, but she's wearing a red dress. And she's lounging on top of a desk. To the right of Dixon is a headshot of Crusher dressed in a blue dress and a blue hat with some pearl necklaces. Uh, Dr. Crusher, by the way. Yeah, what? I said, Not Wesley. Not Wesley. <laughs> that would have been funny. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Wesley's not in this. I will be referring to her as Crusher all the way through. All right, and behind Dixon is a mysterious figure in a trench coat and wearing a hat. Uh, the man has no eyes for some reason, and his skin is a pale yellow. Perhaps this is our lovable data, and perhaps it is not. So the story starts off with the Enterprise is in orbit over Beta Marathi 7, and the crew is taking a much-needed shore leave. Picard, however, is not planning on visiting the planet at all. Instead, he'll be spending his time engrossed in a new Dixon Hill adventure that he recently got from his brother. In Troy's quarters, Troy cannot believe the news Riker just gave her. The circus is in town, and she's going to get to go! This is a lifelong dream for her ever since she was a little kid. Worf, Alexander, and Jordy soon will show up, and Troy is pleased that all of her friends will be going with her. 
the more the merrier. We flash somewhere deep in space. Data is piloting a shuttle for Judge Felipe Luvas. Yes, this is the very judge that tried to classify him as a thing in the episode A Measure of a Man. Philippa is not too happy about needing an escort to the conference she's going to, but the Starfleet rules clearly state that a judge cannot pilot themselves. Data is surprised to learn that the judge bristles under the laws. She states that she has disdain for rules and went into law to learn the insides and outs so that she could better change them when she's given a chance. She then apologizes uh, for her putting him through the trial a few years back. Data says that he had no hard feelings towards her, nor any feelings at all in regards to the subject. On the Enterprise, Picard is in full Dixon Hill attire with the trench coat and hat and everything. And he's walking towards the holodeck with Crusher by his side. She is wearing a 1940s-ish type uh, outfit uh, with a green hat and a yellow dress. Crusher reminds Picard of the trouble they had the last time they ran a Dixon Hill adventure. Picard assures her that everything will be fine, that he had just ordered that all the holodecks go through a level 2 diagnostic. They enter the holodeck and request the computer to run the program, The Rich and the Dead. They step into 1942 San Francisco. As they're walking the street, Crusher notices a mysterious figure walking behind them. She informs Picard that she thinks that they're being followed. He then tells her that it wouldn't be much of an adventure if they weren't being followed. Meanwhile, at the greatest show in the galaxy, Troy and Alexander are equally enthralled by the feats of the acrobats swinging above their heads. Their current feat is that the trapeze artist is holding his assistant by her hair as they dangle above the circus clowns who are dressed up in mock Federation uniforms with baggy pants and overly large communicator pins. Worf is not impressed. He states that anyone can learn how to do this, and that even he and Riker could do it if they were trained. The ring announcer then reminds everyone of the grand finale. The Kartakian cannonball will be fired from the cannon through a flaming hoop into a pool of water. Again, Worf is not impressed. Back in the Dixon Hill story, Picard and Crusher meet with Dix's secretary. She says that there's a woman in his office. They enter the office to meet Antonia. She fears that her brother was murdered in a recent boating explosion. She thinks that it's her other brother, Eldon, who did it to get the brother's inheritance. She says that Eldon had a thing for their brother's wife, Sibylline. Picard then asks who would get the money if it turns out that he was the killer. She calmly states that she would. Picard then names his price. She accepts and leaves so that they can get started. As Picard and Crusher are about to leave, they see that there's a silhouette of a man in the doorway. Picard reaches for his gun. He says the adventure is about to be underway. Back at the circus, Worf excuses himself to go get some prune juice. Troy decides to tag along. As they arrive at the vendor, Worf is very disheartened to learn that they do not carry prune juice. He sadly states, I hate the circus. Back in the holodeck, Picard readies himself and the gun and yanks the door open to surprise their eavesdropper, only to be surprised himself. He finds Q standing there in a purple pinstripe suit. He informs Picard that he's going to be along for the ride to be continued. Although I, I must say, when I first saw the cover, I thought it was Data. The along on guy? The, the eyeless guy. Yeah. Oh, but he, as we now see, it was misleading. In in many ways. It's That's not right. Data. He does have eyes. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yes, in this episode, Q has eyes, yes. Yeah, I don't know what happened there on the cover. If they just, I mean, if that shadow is supposed to be a lot darker so that it looks like his eyes are in shadow, but it looks like you could still see his outli- his eyes and they're just not there. Yeah. I, I'm going to I'm going to pencil them in. Give me a pen. Okay. I think that this might have been by design. So if you look at the cover it's like, "Hey, that could be data." I like data. But then it's like, well, but you know, it's not data. 
But, you know, maybe people will think Data's in this one, like he's in most, fine. But maybe they didn't want to tell you it's Q. So they definitely didn't want it to look too much like Q, because it wouldn't be the first time that the cover ruined the big reveal. Right. No. And he is snapping Q snaps. but uh, Exactly. But it is subtle enough that I did not uh, expect Q to be in it at the end. Yeah, neither did I. So that, that was good. And, you know, they it makes perfect sense that Q would be the fly in the ointment. That would make the holodeck go haywire. I mean, as far as I know, he hasn't done it before. I don't recall him doing it before, so perfect. Isn't Cupid, isn't that a holodeck one, or were they really in Mario England? Uh, I don't remember that being holodeck, but maybe it was. Right. I don't remember. I don't remember either. It's been long enough, I, I do not recall. So is that Antonia on the cover? I think it's supposed to be, because she is a brunette, right? Yeah. Right. She's but... a brunette on the inside, but she doesn't have... I mean, she looks really nice on the cover. Let me say that. <laughs> yeah, she looks kind of homely in the book itself, but on the cover. <laughs> well, I don't know if she, calls, she looks homely, but she looks really hot on the cover, and she looks kind of okay on the inside. And she's got a purple dress on the inside, and she's got a red dress on the cover, which she look, she wears very well. <laughs> now, um, she's working it on the cover. She's working it, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And speaking of how women are drawn, some yeah. of the panels here, Dr. Crusher, which I will be calling Red in my synopsis, <laughs> um, she almost looks mannish or something in, well, in the face. It, it is Pablo Marcos, and yeah. and he has a very distinct artistic style. Yeah. At, at least he cooled it a long time ago with the overly muscular uh, crewman. Right, right. But, I mean... I don't know. I don't, I don't think he did the women any justice in, when he was doing that miniseries, and, and I, I still don't think he does women very well, face-wise. Right. Now, I will say, shape-wise, I think at the beginning of the comic, I think uh, Troy looks pretty cute. Yeah. Yes. Although her face is not, you know, there are some scenes or some panels where you can tell it's Deanna, but the face looks... There's enough characteristics that do not look like like Troy, right? Marina Skirtis or whatever. Right. That uh, that's like it could be somebody else. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah. I think I think we're we're basically in agreement on that one. Right. And she looks a little taller and leaner in some of the uh, panels, but uh, of the issue. Yeah, I don't know if it's just the camera angle, but yeah, at times she looks like she's as tall as Riker. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, well, she is in the foreground. If you're talking about the one where she's talking about the circus and she has her hands out and she's kind of like, ah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, but even the one above that where she's like has her arms on his shoulder and it looks like she's stooping oh, down. Oh, that's a good point. But even with her stooping down, she's almost eye to eye with him. Yeah, that's that's a good point. She's significantly shorter than uh, Frakes. Hmm. That's fine. But anyways, enough beating up on that. Exactly. That's not a problem. So what do you think about the whole shuttlecraft thing that Data's on with the the judge that tried to declare him as a object? Well, as I'm reading through this these three issues, it's like seems totally irrelevant. It's like I don't care. I don't care about this. I mean, I <laughs> I got two stories to worry about already. It's like why are you throwing this third one in? Right. Um and it seems an odd pairing. I mean, yeah. they try to explain it that she can't pilot her own shuttle, and right. she only wanted Data because she wanted the best pilot, blah, blah, blah. But why does she have to take a shuttle from the Enterprise at all? Why can't she? She wasn't on the Enterprise. Yeah, what, what's she doing on the Enterprise in the first place? Well, you know, it's like, let's, let's not ask too many questions. Because, you know, she could have been there for a good reason and then had to go to this conference. But I and still, inter- question, I still quite, the, question them using these tiny shuttles for long-distance travel. Thank you, because the Enterprise is so much faster. It would get there and back well, much faster than it would take the little shuttle to get there. Right, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but they do talk about this shuttle having warp drive Right. In, in, in later issues. And it's like, God, that thing's tiny. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I always envision the warp drive as being a bigger thing. But, uh, but yeah, That's I mean... I mean, look at the Enterprise D. The nacelles are tiny compared to the rest of the ship. 
Well, yeah, but still, you're thinking old ship. school. I know, I know, I know. Bigger I know. the engine, the be- the faster the ship. Well, but it's tiny. Look at the size of the thing. <laughs> well, so so the Delta Flyer had warp drive too, right? In Voyager. Yeah, and the runabouts and the shuttles. Well, yeah, right. At least the runabouts are a little bigger. I mean, these shuttles. Well, that's another comment I have for for later. All right, let's hold off then. So, did you see the coloring mistake on page eleven? Uh, um, I probably not. I didn't note it. If I spotted it and blew it off, that's possible, but probably not. So during the big circus performance, where right. the uh, the one trapeze guy is holding the other one by her hair, <laughs> uh, his hand is not colored. So he's like a green-skinned alien, and then his oh, hand the blue is background. blue, which matches the blue background. Yeah, it looks almost like she's flying in the air with nothing suspending her. Right. Because uh, his hand, his blue hand kind of melds in the background. Good point. Yep. Kind of threw point. me off at first. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, uh, and by the way, her her hair, I mean, that is that her hair? Or is it like part of a, helm, uh, a hat? Uh, yeah, I don't know. A strapped on hat. I don't know. Either way, it would hurt your head, I think. Yeah, I would think. Or your chin, or your jaw, or something. Your head would pop off. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> So, anyways, I do like all the circus clowns in their, you know, their mock federation outfits. I thought that was kind of cute. Uh, cute, but it's like, what, what, what? Why would they do federate? Well, so I guess they did because there's like a whole federation starship in orbit beaming down with shore leave. Or I, I guess they just get a lot of Starfleet coming through. I don't know. Don't you remember the? I remember watching clowns and they're dressed up like policemen and stuff like that. So. Oh yeah, but. But I mean, it's not that that. Right, but but it's like all. What do you see any clowns not dressed up in Starfleet? Nope. So it's uh, yeah. Well, it just seems a little extreme. Yeah, but that's fine. That's fine. It, was it, it is kind of it's it's cute. It's cute. So I I, I do think Deanna's preoccupation with the circus rather hard to believe. Because <laughs> it's so yeah. it just seems so extreme. It's like well, she's so excited about this and stuff, and it's like, well, okay, that's cool. That's cool. And that she's only a computer program away from reliving any circus that's ever existed. So yeah. why? what's the big deal about actually going to one? Yeah. I don't know. Don't know. I guess it would be the same as, you know, watching a circus live versus watching a circus on TV. Right. Yeah, to see a real one. A little different because you can actually interact with the holodeck where you can't. Yeah. Plus, you really don't know what's going to happen because it's real. Right. Where the uh, computer program, I guess. I mean, it's preset. But if you don't know how it's preset, I suppose it could be the same. But still. Yeah. Somebody could fall. Somebody could die. It's like, come on, let's go. Somebody falls. Yeah, there you go. There you go. (laughs) So I saw um, an ad for Metal Men. Another comic. Mm-hmm. Full page. Yep. And when I saw that, it was like, I used to love Metal Men when I was a kid. Did you really? I did. And it's like, I have not thought about that comic in decades. For some <laughs> reason, I really like Metal Men. I don't well, remember why I like Metal Men, but I like Metal Men. And when I saw the, the full page ad, it brought back a lot of uh, a lot of good childhood memories. Oh, that's cool. I did not know you were a Metal Man fan. Uh, I was when I was a kid, yeah. They are making a movie. Of Metal Men? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot who's attached to it. Somebody kind of uh, big. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. He did The Tick. Oh! And Men in Black. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, I like the original Men in Black, and I like the Tick. There you go. I think I think he was actually a pretty good pick for it. Yeah. Give it a little comedic spin without right without actually making fun of it. Right. Yeah. Cool. So okay, that's well. funny. I didn't I did not know that about you, Ken. Well, uh, if you would have asked me, um, I might not have even remembered the name of them. <laughs> but when I saw them visually, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember the metal, man. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, another thing I really liked in this issue, 
was how Worf was describing how Klingon entertainment has no survivors. That's great. Yeah, when he's talking about the yeah, yeah, he's talking about the the circus and stuff, and then he's like kind of Mister Pouty, whatever. I'm bored, and uh, (laughs) and I I think somebody asked him, "Well, do you have anything like this in in, on you know in Klingon?" Right. Uh, And he goes something like this. But Klingon entertainments have no survivors. That's great. <laughs> Love that. Maybe that, maybe that includes the audience. I don't know, but that's great. Right. Yeah, that's funny. Well, not the audience. Well, that would truly be Klingon, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know. You think that he probably saw a circus or two growing up in Alaska or wherever he grew Oh, no, Siberia. Oh, Riker? No, uh, Worf. He grew up in oh, right, Siberia, right? right, right. right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess when he was... Oh, was it Siberia? I, I knew it was Russia, Russia, but... Russia somewhere. Oh, that's right. So his adopted father stopped being an engineer and raised him in Russia. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, anyways, I'd forgotten about that. Good yeah. point. Yeah, and I really don't have any other comments on this particular one myself. Me either. All right. So, shall we see exactly how this story progresses? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So, I'm doing issue number 53. Title is Reductions and Decisions. Its published date is early November 1993. Creative team, Alan Gold is the editor. And then I think everybody else is pretty much the same. But Michael Jan Friedman, writer. Pablo Marcos is the artist. Colorist, Rick Taylor. And Bob Penaha is the letterer. The cover is dominated by Q's face that takes up most of the background. Worf and Deanna are in the foreground and appear to be moving towards one another against their wills, almost like puppets. Lettering says, Worf and Deanna face a deadline from Q. The issue picks up exactly where the last left off in Dixon Hill's office where Q is the tall, dark stranger in Dix's doorway. Picard, dressed as Dixon Hill, says he thought they had seen the last of Q. Q responds, saying absence is supposed to make the heart grow fonder. Dr. Crusher is also in 1930s garb and looks cute. Picard puts his revolver back in his shoulder holster as Q plays the part and suggests raising the stakes of this holodeck game, making it even more interesting. Dr. Crusher says they are not interested, but Q could care less about what interests them. He says he is going to shrink Troy and Worf to the size of a dust moat and sequester them in the folds of the circus's center ring act, the human cannonball. When their tiny bodies go for a ride with the cannonball, they will either die by fire or by water in the landing tank. Either way, not pleasant. Unless... At the circus, Troy and Worf are walking back to the others when they feel themselves tearing apart and the world around them disappearing. The next thing they know, they are together, but in an environment they do not recognize. Q appears and tells them they are miniaturized and in the human cannonball's clothes, about to go for the ride of their lives. Their tiny little bodies will most likely die at some point in the ride unless Captain Picard turns out to be more than a two-bit private dick. Scene cuts to a car pulling up to Eldon Truscott's house. Dixon Hill and Red get out and walk towards the mansion. Picard intends to find out from Eldon the truth about his brother's murder. Dr. Crusher comments that Dix does seem to believe Antonia's theory that it was a murder and not an accident. Dixon does think it was murder, as all Dixon Hill stories turn out to be, and that Eldon is the only suspect he has so far. He thinks, however, that this will change very soon. Eldon overrides his butler and lets Dixon and Red in. Eldon does all the talking with little prompting. He says he agrees with his sister-in-law, Antonia, that his brother Daniel and wife were murdered at sea, but he asserts it is not he that did it. It was Leonard Cantrell, Daniel's partner in a winery, that planted the bomb on Daniel's boat. Dix asks him why. Eldon suspected Cantrell of siphoning off winery profits to go to the National Socialist government in Germany, 
despite the fact that our country is at war with them. Cantrell must have found out Daniel suspected him, so he had him killed. This whole time, Red notices Q's face reflecting on multiple surfaces in the room, a bar top, a mirror. Dixon thanks Eldon and tells him he has given them a lot to reflect on. Jordy notices Deanna and Worf have been gone too long to just get a drink. He then makes a joke that Deanna finally decided to join the circus. Riker says he has a nagging feeling something is wrong as Q's now green head appears on top of a half-naked female performer in the center ring. Riker goes to find Deanna and Worf. Meanwhile in space, Captain Louise... Wow, that must be French. And Data's shuttlecraft come upon a radiation field that could take 1.5 days to circumvent. Data warns there is a chance the radiation could affect their warp drive adversely. The judge says a delay like that could mean she could miss half the conference. She directs Data to take them through. They do so, and just as the shuttle is clearing the radiation field, their engines go offline. They coast clear of the field, but Data says it will take at least two hours for him to get the warp drive back online. She makes a comment about it being a good thing Data was her pilot, and that Starfleet regulations require someone to pilot her. She sarcastically says Starfleet does get things right once in a while. It must be the law of averages. Back on the holodeck, Dixon and Red's car is pulled over by the flashing lights of a police car. The thug-like detective that approaches Dix tells him to back off the Truscott case, or he won't be going to any picnics for a long time. He sucker punches Dixon to the ground and takes his heater. They drive away. Undaunted, Dixon and Red get back into their car and follow the latest accusation to the winery where they plan on facing Cantrell, unfortunately unarmed. Q appears in the back of the car to taunt Picard and remind him that it won't be too long before Troy and Worf go for the ride of their lives. Picard puts the pedal to the metal. At the circus, Riker returns to Geordi and Alexander. He confirmed they left the drink stand 30 minutes ago, and he found their comm badges on the ground. He confirms with the ship that they did not beam back up there. Worf and Deanna attempt to climb their way out of the folds of the human cannonball's clothes, but in the end make no progress despite their best efforts. Deanna tells Worf that they probably can't do anything to get out of their predicament because Q said it is the captain's hands that will save them, not their own. Meanwhile in the winery, Cantrell is predictably telling Dixon and Red that Eldon's accusations are rubbish. He had nothing to do with Daniel's death. In response to Dixon's question, he says he loves his country and has nothing to do with the German National Socialist regime. Finally, Cantrell makes the triangle complete by accusing Antonia of killing her brother. He goes on to claim that Antonia killed Daniel and his wife, then is attempting to pin it on Eldon so that she gets all of her brother's money. She needs it to pay off huge gambling debts to the mob, who will kill Welchers. It was a simple case of her dying or her brother dying. For her, the choice was clear. Dixon asks if he has proof, to which Cantrell says no. The grandfather clock in the room suddenly begins chiming the hour. Cantrell comments that it's early, but with Q's ghostly blue face replacing the clock's face, we know why it went off early. Dixon and Red leave the winery, and on the way they discuss the case. Red states they all had motives to kill Daniel Truscott, but which one actually did it? Dixon says he believes he knows. Back at the circus, Riker receives a message saying the Enterprise's sensor sweeps of the area failed to locate Troy and Worf. Frustrated, Riker orders the sensor sweep of the entire planet, starting from their location and sweeping outward. They might have been taken by a more primitive ground vehicle. Riker orders them to inform the captain, even if it means interrupting his holodeck vacation. From the center ring, Q is playing ringmaster and calling everyone's attention to the human cannonball who enters the huge maw of the cannon. 
Inside the folds of the human cannonball's clothing, Worf and Deanna prepare themselves as best they can for their fate. To be continued. Hmm. Hmm. Things seem to be coming to a head. Do they? They do. Worf and Deanna, about to be blasted out of the cannon. Dixon says he thinks he knows who did it. Mm-hmm. And you know who did it? Well, I do now, because I read all three. <laughs> However, <clears throat> I did make some notes at this point, because, um, if you don't mind me going on... No, go ahead. ...and dominating the conversation. I love whodunits. I love mysteries like this. I seldom get them right, but I love to guess. Mm-hmm. Now, so normally what I see is a good mystery will actually display clues for the reader, but they just won't they won't say, hey, this is a clue. You know, They'll display the information, and it's up to the reader to recognize the clues. So, good murder mysteries give you clues that you can see, and if you're you know, with it enough, you can recognize them. Not so good murder mysteries do not show you the clues. Mm-hmm. They make the basis of it something that's so hard, there's absolutely no way the reader's going to have a clue about it. So, we, at this point, it's like there must be something that we've seen which is going to be the same thing that Picard saw and I should be able to figure out. And I went through both issues and I didn't see squat. Except, <laughs> except this. All three of them blamed each other. So my only theory was all three of them were in on it. They, bo- they all needed money for some reason and they all decided to uh, kill him and split the money. And then and they're then, trying to frame one another exactly. to get it so, for themselves. Exactly, right. So then they start getting greedy, and they're starting to frame each other. So it's like, that's my only theory that I had at this point. Yeah, I, my theory, and it was kind of a, a wild, wild guess, uh, long shot, was the cop, the one that beat him up, saying, oh, you know, hmm. don't, don't <clears throat> right. keep looking into it. Because it, it just seemed like that was just such a random scene, and surely it had to tie in somehow. So right. that guy obviously is in <clears throat> on it, but uh, that yeah. was that was really as far as my guessing had gone. Right. And and that theory that the cop was, you know, being on on the books by somebody was paying him to do that. Right. Um, that jives with what Antonia first said about, you know, maybe Eldon even. You know, has the cops uh, on the take, paying them oh. off. So, uh, yeah, that that kind of points towards Eldon. But it could have been anybody. You know, it could have been her. You know, uh, you know, she's she's got the the cops paid off, and she's just saying Eldon to be, uh, you know, more mis um, another misleading clue. Oh, you're thinking that maybe she's not on the up and up. Hmm. Any of them could not be possibly on the up and up. You know, in something like this. Right. Um, you know, at first I was thinking, oh, wow, cool. Like an Indiana Jones kind of tie-in with the Nazis. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so maybe that's you know, Cantrell's a Nazi. Cool. Okay. Let's, let's, let's see something cool there. And then it's like, well, how do you know? I mean, maybe not. And then right. Eldon looks pretty well to do. But who knows? Maybe he spent too much money for such a fancy environment, and he's out of money. Right. Uh, uh, and then Antonia is like, well... You know, she could need money. I mean, for a variety and, of reasons. And they said, I mean, she made no, she made no excuse about it. If if he comes to find out that he's a, the murderer, I get all the money. So, right. I mean, so you have that to make you think. Right. Maybe it's her all along. Yep. They all have motives, and they all could have done it, and they're all pointing to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what was the extra piece of information? I don't know. So. Right. So, anyways, we'll, uh, we'll find out soon enough. So y'all just just hold hold tight for a minute. Right. Okay. So can so, I tell you what my favorite shot of the whole book is? <clears throat> oh, please. Page nine. It was the uh, the, the shot of Q's face being on the um, the lizard woman's body. The yes. dancer. Yes, that is great. Because just cause, <laughs> it's cause so I, disturbing. It's very disturbing, and. And and but it's so perfect because from a humorous standpoint because that's exactly where Riker is saying I got a feeling there's something wrong around here <laughs> and then you see this you know this 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 almost naked 
gorgeous green woman with feathers or something. And then Q's head is right on top of it. And it, it is very funny. I agree. Yes. So, uh, you know, the comic books do that a lot, both with, you know, Q and with uh, Trelane. Yeah. Having their heads pop up in different weird places. Right. I mean, where are they getting that from? Because that never happens in the the movies, Show. right? Uh, not that I recall. But, I mean, in, cool. in this one, it happens a lot. Yep. It's just reinforcing the fact that Q sees all. So he sees exactly what's going on. And him popping up is reminding them that they're on the clock. Right. So I always wondered, you know, can they see him? Because Beverly definitely seems to be able to see him in the clock. Yes. But he shows up in other places, and they act like they, they don't see him. Well, uh, definitely the other holodeck characters don't seem to see him. Right. Um, but, but, I mean, you, you didn't mention it, but Cantrell pulls him a, 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 pours him a glass of wine, and in the corkscrew, you can see, like, Q's body coming out of it, out of the corkscrew. So. Exactly. So, so basically, his upper body is the corkscrew handle. Yes. So is Picard and Crusher seeing that part at least? I I, I don't know. I I think those two can see him wherever he's popping up, <laughs> but I think the Hollow Deck characters maybe not. Right. But then again, in the Riker scene where he's saying, I think there's something odd going on, and then you know center <laughs> ring you see Q's head on top of this gorgeous uh, alien woman, uh, right. who's preening and posing in the middle in a very statuesque kind of uh, pose. It, no one seems to those that landing party crew. Yeah, right. they, they don't seem to be able to see him. So who knows? Yeah. So maybe uh, he'll be seen when he wants to be seen, and by whom? Right. Well, I mean, he is omnipotent, so I guess that's his prerogative. Exactly. I but, will say that Picard makes that little joke about you've given us a lot to reflect on, Mister Cantrell. So what, did he did he say that purposely because he's been seeing Q's head everywhere? Yeah, like in a reflection, maybe. Right. Good point. Anyways, I, I I don't I don't really care for that. I don't like seeing Q's head in the fireplace and you know all the other times we've seen him in other issues. Right, it seems kind of weird. Yeah. Well, in some cases it's funny. In some cases it's kind of overdone. Right. Distracting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, what else you got? That really is it, because I, I had another comment about the tiny space shuttle, or you know, the shuttle they were in with the right. warp drive, but I made that comment in the first issue's uh, comments. Oh, I guess I have just one other thing. I thought it was interesting how they made Cantrell a perfect-looking blonde specimen, which kind of stereotypical, you know, sometimes you see that kind of person in the old uh, German Nazi movies. Yeah, I need to look it up. He reminds me of a... A character that was in the Batman comics, and oh. I need to find out maybe Pablo Marcus drew those, and I just didn't know who he was at the time. Oh. But there was a a character that went crazy, and he thought he was Batman, so he was dressed up as Batman too. Oh, and when he took his mask off, he looked like this guy. Especially oh. there's a shot in the next issue where it's just like, that's that guy. That's the guy that that thought he was Batman. <laughs> uh, so I guess I should probably look that up one of these days. Cool. But yeah, yeah, definitely tall, muscular, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Yes. Likely member of the Aryan race, yes. So is that, did they do that because he is a Nazi? Or they do that just to make you think he is? Well, he said nobody hates the Nazis more than he does, so Well, if he said it, not. it must be true. He <laughs> wouldn't lie. This is a murder mystery. They all speak the truth. That way you can make informed decisions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyways, so I still, right. I, I still don't know what what clue there was that that Picard picked up on, but I guess we'll find out, won't we? Yeah, they'll they'll spoon feed it to us, I'm sure. For us, uh, slower on the on the uptake than exactly than Dixon Hill. Exactly. All right. Anything else? That's it. All right. Issue 54 came out late November 1993, entitled "Hidden Agendas." And correct me if I'm wrong, but everybody is the same on the uh, the writing and art staff, so we won't go through that. So the cover has a caption, and it says, The Secret of the Circus of Death. And then also says, also featuring Dixon Hill. 
So the picture, the main picture, shows Worf and Troy grabbing for a trapeze above a pool of water. It's a, I think it's probably supposed to be fire, but uh, it's colored blue, so we'll go with water. But it, it's kind of shaped like fire. Anyways, uh, that's the main picture. And then in the bottom right-hand corner is a circle. And inside the circle, we have a picture of uh, Picard as Dixon Hill pointing his uh, pistol at somebody. So the story starts off with Picard and Crusher lurking in the grapevines around a large house. Picard says he knows now who the killer is. He thinks it is Cantrell, since he gave them a very nice German wine at the time of their meeting, even though he claims to have hate the Nazis and would never support their cause or support even their country. Q then pops up and he mocks Picard that he thinks that he's on the right track. Picard asks if Q would tell him if he was not. Q says that that would be cheating and leaves them to it. As the duo sneak closer to the house, a silhouette of a woman on the second floor can be seen looking down at them. Picard is able to get a window open and he and Crusher sneak into the cellar. Q again pops up. This time, he's dressed as a Greek god, lounging and feeding himself grapes. He reminds them that time is running out for Troy and Worf. So we flash now to the circus. Uh, still in the pocket of the cannonball guy, we see Troy and Worf fretting because they can now hear the countdown until the human cannonball goes off. And then that they will be squashed like bugs. Back at the holodeck, Picard finds a case of German wine the same one he suspected that he would find all along. And he also notices that there's a box of dynamite and other materials for making bombs. They have found their man, all right. Then the light turns on, and Cantrell is standing on the stairs with a gun pointed at their heads. He is shocked that Dixon was such a wine connoisseur to catch the clue that he gave them during their visit in the last issue. He admits that he did it to get the money to pay off loan sharks. Picard then concludes that Antonia must not be the one in debt, that it's actually Cantrell who's indebted to the mob. Cantrell corrects him, saying that it is still Antonia who owes the money. And just then, Antonia herself walks down the stairs. They have been working together all along. They had wanted to keep Dixon on the trail towards Eldon. But that time has passed. Cantrell says that there's only two types of people here in the cellar, the rich and the dead. Before Cantrell can pull the trigger on his gun, Picard and Crusher hide behind crates of the expensive German wine. Cantrell refuses to shoot through it. Antonia and he start to argue about it, and Picard hits the gun with the bottle. Then he hits Cantrell with a right hook to the face. Antonia was hit by the stray shot. She dies, and Q admits that Picard has won the game and vanishes. Back at the circus, the countdown has reached zero, and the human cannonball is launched. As he is flying through the air, Troy and Worf pop out of his pocket and grow to full size. Worf grabs the trapeze with one hand and Troy with the other before they can hit the flaming ring of doom. The crowd goes nuts with the unexpected surprise performance. Troy leads Starfleet crew to some containers that she was getting some sensations from in the last issue. She opens one and finds an endangered beaver-like creature. She says that these are protected species and that the circus must be a front for a smuggling operation. The ringmaster and the other circus folk get the drop on them. Just as Picard and the security team beam in from behind and is able to stun all the evil carnies. The story wraps up with Alexander beaming with joy about how great his dad is. That when his dad says that he can do a trapeze, then everyone better know that he can indeed do it. Also, Troy and Picard contemplate that perhaps Q did all of this to help them find the animals. Epilogue. Data and Lavuyas have just got the engines back together, and they're starting to charge them up. Then they get a reading that a large ship is heading on a collision course. The engines will not be ready in time to be continued. Go. So, we're going from one story thread into the next one. 
as all comic books should be. Every comic book should tie into the next. It's a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> that is very soap opera-like, isn't it? As opposed to you know more standalone stories that have nothing to do with, do with each other, but these right. actually overlap each other. So cool. Yeah, yeah and I fine. think I think the best comic book stories do that. Where there's you know you might you may have a major story that has an ending and a beginning, right. but you have some other stuff that's always kind of in the background going. Cool. Well, we definitely got that here. Yeah, yeah. You don't get it very often, but but I do like it. Good. And you um, can't do it, it with a TV show, so. It's just it's just one of the perks of this con- this uh, this medium. Okay, well, you can do this with a TV show too, though I think. Uh, now you can. Back in the day, you couldn't. Yeah, well, back in the day, you never did it. They're all standalones, weren't they? Right. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. N- now they they do like with Lost and even Enterprise and Deep Space Nine. They 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 did continuing story threads. Right, and they even might have done this kind of stuff once in a while, where two standalone story threads that overlapped a little bit and just kept things going. Right. Um, definitely the in the early seasons of Enterprise, where they did the Temporal War mm-hmm. storyline, which I liked. I was looking forward to seeing what the heck's going on. Actually, that was one of the things. It was kind of like um, X Files. You always had that thing in the background about the aliens and the bees and all that kind of stuff going on. And every time you had an episode that told, told you more about the big story, I love that. And then they went back to the one-offs. Right, uh, right. Where I thought the temporal war was that in Enterprise. It was like, oh, yeah, I want to find out more about that. Yeah, we never do find out who that No, they just totally dropped it. figure is that was giving those cockroach guys the ability <laughs> to flatten themselves and things like that. Exactly. Uh, help from the bad guys in the future, I guess. I still but, think but it they, was the Romulans. Uh, do you think it was Romulans? It, it could have been, but they just totally dropped that thread. Um, and I kind of like that, but yeah. Anyway, so yes. So the, the most important thing is as Dixon and Red are getting ready to go through the uh, window, open window, into the winery, there's like a silhouette of those two. And I must say, Crusher looks picture perfect. You know, the way, the way uh, Pablo drew that one. Really nice. Uh, they're on page three with with Q kind of looking looking at them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that was really that was really nice. Okay, I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> so so that's, that's your favorite picture of these three issues? I, I think so. I think so. It's just, it's just something simplistic and perfectly drawn. I thought it was a very good job. Um... So, we know who did it. We do. And it so, was more than one. It was more than one. But the thing is, like I said before, good murder mysteries give you the clues, and they give it in a way that you can piece it together. My right. opinion. Poor, weak murder mysteries are ones that do not show you all the clues. They... they or, or they show it to you in a way you couldn't possibly figure it out. Right. Or they don't even show you the clues, period. I mean, absolutely nothing. Uh, Jim Hutton was in a Ellery Queen TV show uh, when I was a lot younger. NBC, I forgot who did it. Uh, that wasn't, that was by mistake. That, that wasn't, okay. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so they had this show, and it only lasted about a season, and they would have the hardest fracking mysteries that they would do and it's like you had no clue of figuring out anything and it's like I hated the show I watched it a few times that's it you're just you're just messing with me no that's that's not the kind of murder mystery I like I like to have a shot at it at least right and this didn't give us a shot at it and I did not like like that about it this was like that one this is like Ellery Queen Mm. so uh, so it kind of cool that because Picard was the father of a wine man, uh, a, a wine family, that he would <laughs> happen to know that because it was a Riesling, and, and you know, Riesling grape, you know, that, that comes from Germany, so that's not an issue there. But it's like, he knows it's a Riesling, and he not only knows it's a Riesling, but he knows it's a Riesling that came from a vine, grapes that came from a vine that grew in Germany. Not transplanted vines that grew in the States. 
<laughs> and it's like, how would you even know that? And it's like, okay, whatever. Um, and the other thing is, the only Riesling, I mean, maybe maybe Riesling comes in, in red wine also, but the only Riesling I've ever had is white wine, and what Cantrell gives them is clearly red wine. And, and you know, who knows, I'm not a wine expert, but maybe there is red Riesling uh, wine, but, all, you know, like I say, white wine, that's what I know Riesling as. Uh, I don't know. I think it was kind of BS-y myself, but... <laughs> All right. What do you I think? was actually thinking this was actually a, one of the better murder mysteries we've gotten because the only other one I can think of was that holodeck, or not the holodeck one, that Deep Space Nine one where that guy died on the holodeck, and it was like just out of nowhere, just like oh, uh, I Odo just happens to know that it was this, this, and this without any clues of that. Right. Ace. Well, the fact that this was a better mystery than another really weak one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> it's just, I, I don't know. I, I'm just saying the murder mysteries I like the best are the ones you have a shot at knowing. Right. And they didn't they didn't tell us everything. They, they didn't give us all the clues. That's true. They did not. Um, and, and I'm not saying hand it to you on a silver platter and say, this is a clue. No. You, you, you present the information and you need to recognize it as a clue and, and put two and two together. But. Right. I'm with you. This didn't do it. So, it's okay. Right. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's better than the normal holodeck goes awry type thing. Yeah. But I did not like the circus thing. The whole idea that Worf and Troy are these tiny little bug-sized things inside some guy's clothing is just creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> creepy. I mean, where exactly on his body are they? I mean, they're not necessarily in his pocket, even though I say in the synopsis that they, they pop out of his pocket, but yeah. it never actually says where they're at. No. And if they're dust motes, they're small enough to be anywhere. Did they say dust motes, their size of dust motes? Yeah, that's what Q said. Okay. Okay, well then that would explain why he couldn't feel them crawling all over him. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, if right. they were, like, bug-sized, then... Yeah, a really small bug. Feel it crawling all over you. Yeah, and obviously, also, luckily, they were not, like, in his pants or somewhere where, you know, he they'd be kind of, like, crushed against the side of the, uh, the the cannon. Right. Or something like that, you know. So, obviously, there was some place where they weren't getting crushed, which was good, which is handy. For them. For that. Yeah. Exactly. Anyways, I wasn't the biggest fan of that. Yeah. And then, and then Q, it's like, okay, Q, you set all this stuff up. Picard got it. You should whisk them away, not oh, make them normal size again just after they leave the uh, you know, like a projectile out of the gun. <laughs> yeah, I did not like that either. Right. And, and the fact that Worf is able to grab the the high the, the trapeze uh, you know, handhold thing or whatever. Mhm. And then reach out and grab Troy. So Troy didn't do anything. I mean, she's yeah. just basically along for the ride. She's the damsel in distress. She's I living mean, out her dream about being a uh, ah, circus star. Yeah, I'm sure her dream did involve, uh, you know, plunging to your death. But, <laughs> but I mean, at, at least she could have, you know, like reached out for him or something. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, you know, so they so they both grab each other's arms or something. You know, something she's, she's doing something. I don't know. As opposed to just falling. Exactly. That's right. Worf had to do everything. Well, I think it gives her a little more credit, but whatever. <laughs> no, I did. These issues, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of. Not gonna lie to you. Yeah. Well, I, I thought they were fine. It's just they could have been better. I had one other comment. So, what did you think about their reasoning behind maybe Q did this to let us know about these poor endangered animals all oh, along? Oh God! What a bunch of crap. There's no way. And then they're like, you know, he did let us know about the... Uh, oh, org. oh, oh, I love that. Yeah, go ahead. I got something to say about that if you don't say it. Well, I always still get that he screwed over the Federation by exactly. letting the Borg know that the humans were even out there. 100% spot on. That's exactly what I say. And they said that in the, in the uh, you know, in those, the, those early um, episodes, that particular episode where they first came into contact. Exactly. Right. 
So, oh, but they did they did alert the Federation to the existence of the Borg. Yeah, flip that around, <laughs> Holmes. You're supposed to have more technological development before you came into contact with them. He right. screwed you over. He no. screwed you over. <laughs> Which it, it, has it, kind of been retconned <clears throat> in you know since then because now they had you know where um, what's her face seven of nine. Her yeah. parents were actually Borg experts, which oh would, right, which would have placed them before <clears throat> the events in Star Trek: The Next Generation, which yep. I always had a, a hard time buying. Yep. But but anyways, as of the as of the writing of this issue, that that had not come out yet. Yeah. So I, I call BS on on their logic there. I do, and the fact that um, I mean. And I think in these issues, uh, didn't he even refer to humans as insects or something? I mean, if he thinks of, think, thinks of us as so little, I mean, why would he give a rat's behind about some, you know, semi-smart, you know, beaver? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. No. Does no, not. I, I'm surprised they even they even suggested that. Right. I I I I don't. The only time when uh, when I think Hugh was ever well, I don't know. I guess he could have been a, a semi-good guy a couple times, but I, I like him better when he's a jerk. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, he's the fly in the ointment. He's the guy that can do anything, and because he really doesn't care about humanity, I right. mean, he could actually carry it out. Um, yeah, and that's kind of the re- you know that's the only reason why they're still there is just because he gets more enjoyment out of you know pulling the wings off the flies than just killing the fly itself. Exactly. The idea that he would actually do something to save some in, some endangered species. Forget about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you you and I agree on that one. Yeah. But uh, anyways. Right. All right. So I guess uh, when we when we come back, we'll find out what's going on with Data and his best buddy. Ah. Yes. <laughs> Louvois. Captain Louvois. I don't know. It's got to be. It's got to be something like that. Some right. some some funky French pronunciation. We'd have no 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 shot at. <laughs> All right then. Okay. Well, anything else uh, we want to talk about these issues before we go into our um, expanded universe stuff? Let's do the expanded universe stuff. So we only got three episodes to talk about because we already did October episodes. So this is just the November episodes. And uh, there's the first one is called the Dark Page which came out season seven. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the one where Troy learns that she had a sister through Deanna Troy's like suppressed memories of her. Oh. Remember that one? Not one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> Are you, is this sarcastic? No, it really is. Cause is it? I, I don't remember yeah, this one at all. Luxwana okay. is acting all weird, and then it ends up like Troy goes into her mind. Yeah. And then uh, come to find out, she had an older sister that died before she was born or when she was still a baby and Luxana has completely blocked all memories of her. Oh, wow. It's a really good episode. Huh. And it might be the only time we got to see her dad. So her dad shows up and he's, you know, as he was back then in his full, you know, uh, Wrath of Khan type uniform. It's a good episode. (laughs) I can't believe you don't remember this one. I don't remember this one at all. And it has Kristen Dunst in it. Oh, when she was a little little girl. Wow. So what? It, she she played somebody. I mean, uh, she the the B story was uh, Luxana was supposed to be helping these aliens, and she's one of the the little girl aliens. Oh, okay. She has these these big ears that kind of wrap around her head a little bit, kind of like the Ocampa, if oh. I remember. Hmm. Kind of look like that. Oh. Cool. Anyways, yeah, you you need to pull out your season seven DVD set. They're not all great. In fact, there's some stinkers in there, but yeah. that one was actually one of the better ones. Yeah, I think they were really running out of uh, ideas by that point. All right. Well, the next episode was Attached. Yeah, I remember that one. All right. Yeah. Uh, give me a super high level because I'm drawn. Well, that was – so basically Picard and Dr. Crusher go down to a planet for some reason. And in the end, they end up on the planet. They've got implants or something where they have to run for their life on the planet and they cannot get too far away from each other or they will fall down in pain and whatever. So it's kind of like... 
Oh, and the, okay. only, the old Tony Curtis, uh, Sidney Poitier movie where they're two escaped convicts. They hate each other and stuff, but they're, they're like chained at the leg. Chain game. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. And they got to they got in the end they got to work together and whatever. Well, this is one where Crusher and Doctor Crusher, that is, and uh, Picard are are forced to be literally, uh, you know, figuratively chained and and get past this trial or, or whatever. Yeah, wasn't this one also one if I'm not if I'm not remembering incorrectly that it kind of alluded that they maybe having a romance or like the like the seeds are being planted so that... to have a romance yeah right uh, I think it's possible because they're really because I think I think along with this tethering where they can't get a far away from each other they can kind of read each other's minds that's to some degree. right yes 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 that's right because because uh, Crusher comes back and says to him after they're not sure which way to go, and then uh, Picard, you know, with great commanding authority, says this way, and Crusher turns to him and says, "You have no idea where you're going." <laughs> <laughs> and then Picard says, "Yes, but sometimes you need to act like you do, you know, you know, to That's to right. make progress towards something." Right. And then yes. she's going like so. So she's learning all these things about him, and I guess uh, both ways. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, that's that's actually a good episode too. I thought it, I, that one I remember, and that one I liked. Uh, right. And, and in the end, they always had a kind of shadowy, almost kind of relationship. Right. But in the end, they never did because Picard felt so guilty about uh, Jack Jack going on the away mission where he died. Because he right. he put him in the situation where he died. Right. And then what, what what Picard thought that maybe if he ever got together with Doctor Crusher that it'd be like oh he purposely got rid of Jack or something I don't know I don't know all the motivations but I never something it, that. something in there is kind of why they never got together I don't know. Right. Yeah I remember that one. Okay and then the last episode this month was. Force of Nature, which we've talked about before. This is the one where I think you said you don't remember it. It's that warp warp drive is destroying space, and oh, I remember when I remember when the warp drive was destroying space, and they oh. had to be and they had to become uh, like <laughs> ecologically minded or something. Right. It's like you know. Yeah, they put speed limits in certain areas that were already kind of deteriorating. and Right, space would, was deteriorating or something. They would right. work on finding another way, and then you you never hear about it directly again. Yeah, because I think when they started doing that kind of stuff, it's like, okay, so somebody wanted to get across the point that, you know, no matter what, how far our technology gets, you know, there's going to be limits, and you got to live within those limits. And it's like... No, this is escapist fun. <laughs> I I don't I don't want the characters to have to live within the limits. So I'm well, glad they, were, they dropped they were, it. They were just showing that you know they were doing their analogous towards you know the green greenhouse effect and all that. Sure, stuff. sure. Global warming. Yeah, which is all fine and wonderful, but um, I I think it didn't need to be here. Right. Yeah, and to my knowledge, the only time it's ever even mentioned again, and and, and I think we've talked about it that you had never heard this before, was supposedly the nacelles on the Voyager, the reason why they move, oh, move, move around was because those were a new type of warp engine that didn't destroy space or whatever. Do you know why they move around? Because uh, it looks cool? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> so anyways I don't know where I heard that from um, yeah but I, I had heard that that might have been they, that then, could have been their way to, to to justify the cool uh, engine rotation but then the Enterprise E but. doesn't have that kind of nacelle so well then they figured out a way to do it without it moving oh yeah because I don't like the moving <laughs> <laughs> right alright well that uh, that's it then those are the three Expanding universe stuff. So we'll come back next week, and we're going to do what's next week, Ken? Oh, we did Taz, right? And now we get next gen. So now rotationally, we should be at Deep Space Nine again. Yep, Deep Space Nine, seven, eight, and nine. Okay. So should be good. Can't wait. Me too. Me too. 
Although, if I had to put a ranking on the three different series we're going through now, mm-hmm. I kind of fluctuate. I think overall, I think I like Taws best. Uh, but oh. sometimes I like the uh, next gen, too. You're talking about the comics or just the stories comics. in general? Yeah. Comics. So, so the series, the comic, the comics, and then Deep Space Nine is is definitely three. I'm gonna agree with you on that because uh, I think the Deep Space Nine one is still kind of finding its footing, both right. the series itself at, in the early years and the comic book series. Right. And the you know the next generation, they can't really do all that much because they're still tied into what's going to be on next week's episode and we can't right. really contradict that whereas the original series even though they don't do it that much but it seems like they can take more they can jumble up the cast a little bit more from episode sure. or issue to issue where you know as long as you don't kill off anybody you know you don't have to have Spock in every issue and things like that right so I agree well, with you I, I'm in, really enjoying the original series um, comic book series all right. So, so we'll uh, be getting together next week for a little Deep Space Nine action. Yep. So take care, everybody, and talk to you next time. On Star Trek Comic Book Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here